I talking into this thing right? This episode is sponsored by Less Accounting. Are you looking for a system that makes it easy to track all of your expenses, income, and your budget? Is QuickBooks too much of a pain for you? It was for me, and I switched to Less Accounting, and I love it. It makes things really easy to keep track of and gives me a lot of charts and graphs that make it easy for me to look at and just know where I'm at with my expenses and everything else. One of the owners, Alan Branch, and his son have written a book for entrepreneurs' children that talks about what entrepreneurs do and why they're important. So if you're interested in that, go to lessaccounting.com slash hero. This episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the first place I go to keep my business skills sharp. They offer over 150,000 books on business, finance, planning, and much more. They also have a great selection of fiction that keeps me entertained when I'm just not up for some serious content. I love it because I can buy a book, download it to my iPhone, and listen while running errands or at the gym. Get your free trial at freelancershow.com slash audible. This episode is brought to you by CodeSchool. CodeSchool offers interactive online courses in Ruby, JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and iOS. Their courses are fun and interesting and include exercises for the student. To level up your development skills, go to freelancershow.com slash CodeSchool. This episode is brought to you by ProXPN. If you're out and about on public Wi-Fi, you never know who might be listening. With ProXPN, you no longer have to worry. ProXPN is a VPN solution which sends all of your traffic over a secure connection to one of their servers around the world. To sign up, go to ProXPN.com and use the promo code TMTCS, short for Teach Me to Code Screencasts, to get 10% off for life. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 126 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Davis. Hello. Curtis McHale. G'day. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we're going to be talking about how to ramp up on a project when there's a lot of pre-existing content. In my line of work, it's usually code that you have to come up to speed on. So have you guys ever worked on projects like this? Yep. Yes, I have. Do you want to talk a little bit about what those projects were? I had one, I guess the biggest one was taking over a fairly complex uh, WordPress site, and specifically we were working on one widget, which sounds like it'd be fairly small, but it did a lot of stuff and allowed you to customize a widget per page. So each page had its own widget area in WordPress. Anyways, I had to fix it, actually, because it was broken. And the hardest part is that there was zero documentation anywhere, and then there was also no tests. So it was like just coming in and seeing how it worked just from the get-go. Right. What about you, Eric? Okay, I can think of a few cases where I've come in where a project didn't have something existing, but it's actually the majority of the time there's something already there. With Redmine, that's like a big one. It's 50 plus thousand lines of you know Ruby Rails code, so it's a pretty large application. And even if I was making like a new plugin for someone, I would have to integrate and use existing APIs. And you know some of them aren't well documented, so you you know you have this all this legacy burden you have to deal with. And even, like, I've done some rescues, which kind of, based on the fact they're a rescue, you're coming into a project that has code or other assets that are done and you need to fix up and clean up. I think there's been very few projects where I come in and can start from scratch. Um, and even in those cases, it's they're typically, like, additional projects for a client where I've already done kind of, hey, we have all this stuff here. Let's just start something new instead of lumping it into this other category. Yeah, that makes sense. I've kind of done both. I did a couple of maintenance contracts pretty early on going freelance. And so it was a large body of work that had already been done. And then, you know, I had to maintain it and figure out how things had been put together. And I've also worked on a few teams where, 
you know, there was a lot of work that had been done and I was coming into the middle of the project. And finally, I've been in the, the situation that Eric's talking about working on systems like Instructure Canvas and Redmine. So, you know, I've kind of seen a few of these. What do you guys tend to do to get up to speed on those? Well, I'm actually just picked up one a little bit ago. So it's like I actually went through my process again. You know, this is all, this is all code related, but, you know, you can kind of take it to however you, whatever you want. But, you know, once you get access to the code or all the assets, you, you know, you download them. Um, there's typically a couple major areas where, like, those are the core aspects of the project. For Rails, it's like the bundler file, you know, if they have stuff in the initializers, and then kind of picking through uh, the models I found is always good, because that's where your database is. That kind of shows how the data is put together. Um, and then from there, you can kind of pick through whatever you notice. It also changes. Like, if it's an API-heavy project, there's going to be a lot in the data. There's going to be a lot in, like, API calls. If it's a more of a front-end, a lot of JavaScript front-end, single-page app, then I'd probably jump to the JavaScript area. But it's basically you have to go by experience. There's also tools that will help. It's even in the like the Ruby world and JavaScript world that will kind of give you a state of your project. Like you have missing tests, you have a good amount of tests, you're missing you know an entire test suite on some functionality, or you know the code standards, code quality is not up to, to snuff in this file or that file. Um, and that can kind of point you to trouble spots, which is basically what you're looking for when you first do your eval, like what's going to bite you later on. How about you, Curtis? Well, on that one project I talked about, the first thing I did was actually write documentation for every function in the whole thing so I could even figure out what was going on. That's actually been one of the best tools that I've found as I've become a better developer is writing the documentation or a doc block at the top of each function so you know what's going on. And I also take notes. I have a file I keep open where I jot stuff down like, I don't know what this method's doing. I don't know why it's interacting like this. And that's more just for my personal use as I'm exploring it. Yeah, in my experience, first of all, the doc blocks at the beginning of methods, it just feels like clutter to me most of the time. But well, sometimes the, if the code's bad too, then most likely the documentation's going to be bad. So, I mean, if you're lucky, you don't actually have any documentation, but I found sometimes they'll lie to you. And so... Mm-hmm. The code does one thing. The doc block is from a previous version that does another. You have to be careful with that. Yep. Um, but one thing that I, I do often with uh, getting involved is I'll ask them if I can be put in touch with the previous developer. And uh, most of the time they have a good enough relationship with whoever they had before that, you know, they can come in for a few hours and kind of show me around and show me what, what's what and what's where and, and all of that stuff. And sometimes not. And so then I have to do a lot of the things that you guys are talking about. With the code, and this is very much a code thing, I also tend to, I don't start writing tests right away, but as I'm getting into things and making the changes that they want, I'll tend to put tests around the stuff that's already there if there aren't already tests. And that way I can kind of figure out if I broke something because, you know, the tests pass and they kind of characterize what it should have been. And so if I change it, then... You know, and it breaks, then I know it broke. But yeah, digging into it, it, it's really interesting. And and I like a lot of the advice that Eric gave because that's more or less the process that I go through. One thing that I found is useful, especially on apps that don't have tests or they're just not documented, is to try to write like a very high level test that goes end to end of like, okay, this is what it actually does. You know, and that can, you know, serve as a safety net, but also. I found using that with like a debugger or whatever, just, you know, breakpoint space throughout the application, you can kind of see, you know, the path of a user as we go through it. And so you can say like, okay, if there's weird 
read way stuff's loaded, if um, there's callbacks or any kind of oddities. And sometimes I don't even check that in, and the test might not even have any actual assertions. It's just like clicking links or following redirects, doing that sort of thing. And that's just kind of for me to walk through programmatically how the application works. One other thing I've done, because a lot of times there is information out there that isn't necessarily in the code or in the work that's been done. And so I'll, I I spend a lot of time talking to the folks that, you know, hired me. And so I'll ask them for things like emails from the past or any kind of correspondence, really. I'll go look through their backlog of Git pushes and pulls and, and Git requests. And, you know, if they're using a time or not a time tracking, a, a project management system, I'll go look through past tickets and see what they've got there and get an idea of how it flowed before and what kinds of things were important to them and what kind of information they put in there. Because a lot of times there's information in there about why they do certain, why they built things a certain way or why they did things a certain way that's not in the code. But then as I move forward, I, I have an idea of where to go from there because I know why they made some of the decisions they made in the past. Yeah, and that's actually a tool I use a lot. Git or even if used a version, I think almost every version control has like a blame feature, which actually looks at a file and will tell you who last made a change to each line. Um, and so I use the Git history, blame, all that stuff to really track through like, you know, because sometimes there might be something that's confusing or it looks wrong. But when you go through the history, you understand, oh, this was made because of they're working around something or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I myself, I try to put in really good comprehensive commit messages when I make changes. And so if other people on the project do that too, you know, you can kind of follow what they've done. It's a hit or miss. Some projects don't. And I mean, like Curtis said, like in the chat, some people don't even use version control. So you're pretty much can't use that if they don't use the tool. Yeah. What about systems that yeah. are kind of, oh, go ahead, Curtis. I say I've had a number that I have no version control whatsoever and the client is coming to me with it. Hey, this doesn't work. And so I even step back to, okay, when you like got this project started, how did you expect it to work? And they give me like a spec way from the beginning of the whole thing. And then we sometimes throw what we've had or fix what we've had. I did that once where someone had like 300, 301 redirects instead of like two WordPress template files, which would have made everything work. So that was what I did. Killed the redirects once I figured it out and added two template files. That's useful if you can talk with your client or other people on the team. I've done it where I've sat down with the lead developer and said, okay, let's make a list of every feature that this system needs to do. And then we compared that to what it did and found like there's some gaps or there's some areas that, you know, it's kind of diverged from what they expected, but no one actually sat down and kind of, here's the full spec or here's the full idea. So that was pretty enlightening. And we ended up passing that around for about a year or so afterwards of like, you know, hey, this is a new thing or hey, this actually should be covered by this other feature, that sort of thing. It's just the project got too big. It got away from everyone, I think. Yep. Now, if you're coming onto a team that's already doing the work, what, what kinds of things do you do differently there? If there's a team there, you're, you're kind of lucky in that you can talk to people. You know, you can use chat. You can get on the phone. Um, I've done a lot of screen sharing where I'd like walk through stuff. It's a real quick way to kind of bootstrap like if there's no documentation. It's basically informal documentation on the project. Um, I did that and actually found gaps in like their setup instructions and basically pointed out like, hey, I'm a new developer. I'm looking at this with fresh eyes. You glossed over an entire important section that I lost time on. But if we write it down, it would save the next person. And so especially if it's a, like an internal team, like the staff of a company, getting that written down is good for them because if they hire another employee, 
you know, that employee doesn't lose that time because that time just gets sunk. And once you know the process, you forget to write it down. But yeah, I just, I like using the team kind of as clarification and shortcuts for stuff. And it depends on your role. If you're coming in just as someone to do the work versus someone who's actually going to train the team, that's going to depend on how you're going to approach them. Yeah, that's true. Um, I found that uh, it is a lot easier to get going because, like you said, you have those resources, the people that are already in the trenches and, you know, fighting the good fight to get some of this stuff figured out. And I just want to put a shout out to a product that I use called Screen Hero. And that's just something, it doesn't work on Linux, but it does on Mac and Windows. And so, yeah, I've been able to share my screen. They can actually type on my screen and it's pretty handy to get things going. And a lot of times, too, if I get stuck, then, hey, well, you know, I'm getting this weird error. I'm encountering this problem. And a lot of times they can just push you in the right direction. And so you get the little nudge you need, and they can still get the work done without actually having to stop and come and look and see what you're doing. And so, uh, you know, it's pretty nice. But they're also there if you do need them to come over and stop and look at what you're doing. So Eric brought up in the chat room getting the app actually running, if it's an application that you're working on. Have you encountered problems with that? Yeah, like I said a few minutes ago, sometimes there's like setup instructions, like especially in software with like Ruby, Rails, and you know any kind of large system. Like It's not like you can't just download the source code and run it. There's typically steps involved. Most of the time, people try to have that set up in the readme or somewhere like on a wiki or whatever, but there's steps that are skipped. You know, the readme was written six months ago. Since that time, we've changed things. And so I don't make it my first point. I actually want to read some of the code that I'm going to be running before I actually get it running. But sometimes it can be a bear. I've encountered issues from they use very weird versions of libraries and actually like system software, like a certain version of the database server that isn't available anymore. It's not, you know, taken off the market or whatever. I ran into issues of you need to get special API keys from third-party vendors or you need to get holes punched in firewalls. Like there's a lot of setting up and getting started things that could happen. And I think it's it's important to do that. Like once you kind of feel comfortable with, okay, I can see how, you know, some of the system works to kind of get the app running. Um, if you can, in Rails, you know, like starting this, the, the Rails application server, I actually try to do that before I even get the tests to run because tests are usually flakier but if you can get the app to run, then you know like you have most of the dependencies handled. And so once it's running, then you can poke around with it, and then you can start working on tests or whatever whatever the next step of getting bootstrapped is. Yeah, that makes sense to me. One thing I'd add to that is a lot of times I'll get things running, and then in Ruby on Rails at least, and I think in a, most other systems, they keep a log of what's going on. And so once I have it running, then I'll run through some of the routine stuff that it's supposed to do and watch the log and watch what floats past. And that way I can get an idea of what it's doing. And it's a really good way of seeing, okay, these are kind of the core classes or core areas of functionality in the app. Yeah, and I mean, Curtis will speak to this more, I bet, but I've had problems because I've done a little bit of WordPress development, but I've had problems where a plugin was built for a certain version and you're now on a different one. And so the underlying APIs have changed or whatever. And so the plugin might start working, but it doesn't actually have all the features where you get like this big blank screen or weird errors like that. And so that's kind of the process of getting it running, getting where you can kind of see what's going on. And it could mean your development version needs to be downgraded, or it could be the software itself needs to be upgraded to work with the latest one. Yeah, I actually had one using a Vagrant box, and they had to use Salt Stack to build it, but then the Salt Stack had actually changed, and then Vagrant had updated two or three versions. And to actually get it running for myself, I had to 
in theory, roll back my VirtualBox version and my Vagrant version to an old one that wasn't supported with the rest of my development installs, and then I could run their server theoretically. So I did not continue with that project because it was crazy, but... <laughs> yeah. And at that yeah. time, Salt was, like, brand new, so they're, like, I'm looking around for information on it, and I'm like, there's nothing, like... There's not very little written about it, and even less written about it in the context of how we were running it. And it was pulling from their live server, like only specific blogs and a multi-site install. And the guy was too busy to continue working on it. That's why he said. That's why the original developer wasn't working on it. That's funny. And and yeah, I've I've run into things where in the setup they specify like different versions of Ruby or different versions of Rails, just from one project to the other. And you know the setups and the APIs just aren't completely compatible one from another so you actually have to almost isolate them and run them in different environments and things and do funny stuff that kind of thing has gotten better but at the same time you know sometimes it's it's hard i am kind of curious eric you were talking about how they have documentation on how to set it up but that documentation is out of date so do you wind up requesting access to their documentation system so you can update it or do you do that in your own system and if they don't have documentation what do you do um, it depends a lot on the project. In this specific case that I'm thinking of, their documentation is scattered in the actual readme, like kind of a, a plain text file in the code. Um, and then it's also on a, like a, a GitHub wiki. They gave me access to all of that. But what I did is I you know, talked to them like, hey, your docs don't look like they're correct. I had to do this extra step. Does that sound right? Or am I going off on a different track? And they're like, oh yeah, we we glossed over that. And so what I'm doing is I'm going to you know, change the readme in the docs because that's kind of the canonical, that's the way to get it set up. And then since that's tracked in Git, I sent the, send the changes to them, it'll be in the project. Everyone who gets it from then on will have it updated. Um, in the past, I've had companies where the wiki was kind of the canonical source. And so they'd give me access to that. I would edit it, put my changes right in there, or sometimes even have to write a whole new document. Um, and then once it was done, you know, let the client know like, hey, there's new docs on you know, how this new server is set up or whatever it ends up being. And the nice thing, or at least what I, I try to make sure is that those docs are searchable. So when new team members come on, they can search for, I don't know why it's doing this or whatever, and I'll catch the docs. Um, so sometimes I'll actually link the docs or I've even made a quick start thing for like people who know what they're doing. Like, you know, you're a Rails developer, you know how Rails works, but here's kind of the, the one, two, three checklist of getting started, which is like, you know, set up bundler. You're a Rails person. You know how to do that. You just do it. But then like item five would be, okay, now sign up for this third party to get API keys. Uh, make sure to get this kind, not this kind, and put them in this file where it's a bit more detailed because it's more app specific at that point. Yeah, that makes sense. If you get to pick the documentation system, what do you do? Hmm. I mean, I like the readme sometimes because it's self-contained with the code. It's very easy to kind of keep it in sync. And everyone who gets the code gets the readme. And I think most developers I know will jump and look at the readme or like an install doc to kind of see how to get set up. That said, the wikis are typically more accessible. Um, they're a little bit easier to manage. And you know you don't have just one file. Like I've, I've seen readmes that are a couple hundred thousand lines long. Like just people dump everything in there. And so... It's a pain. If you don't know what you're looking for, you can't jump through it. So if the project has a lot of documentation, I tend to do kind of the quick start or bare minimum in a readme and then point them to like a wiki with like, here's the complete stuff. Or if you have problems, here's how to troubleshoot it. And it also helps too if you have non-developers writing documentation. That way you don't have to give you know code access or get access to change the readme. They can just do it on the wiki. Yeah, that makes sense. 
What about you, Curtis? How do you manage documenting stuff? Well, I write a full doc block for every function, say every, probably 95% of every function in there all the time. And then we can generate documentation out of that if we want. And then for longer term documenting, especially user facing, I will actually record a screencast for my clients so that they can see it long term in their dashboard. Outside of that, I mean, there's a bit of a readme in them, but there's not a ton past that. Yeah, that makes sense. When you're trying to get ramped up on a project, do you try and do like phone or Skype calls or email? What what seems to be the most effective way to do it? I think it depends on the savvy of the client, right, or who, who you have access to. So in the one where I had all the broken redirects, I talked to the client. I said, this doesn't work, and I dug in after that. The developer was totally AWOL because they couldn't do it. And yeah, so I just dug in myself. There's not much past that. On other ones where we've had to do more, I guess, almost discovery, then it's been email and back and forth. And then I usually actually produce a report of all the issues that we need to fix before we enter into any new work, typically. Yeah, that makes sense. If you're starting a new project, do you do you tend to create a lot of documentation for whoever's coming after you? Or for the most part, do you just not worry about it? I say it really depends on what we have. So when I set up a custom Vagrant box, I write out all the install instructions so they're copy and paste in a readme file, right? So the next developer that comes in can clone the box, clone the repositories they need, and get running on it. So it's essentially a tutorial for them. And then I have all, say, all my function and code level documentation as we go. Like Even when I build a WordPress plugin or something with WooCommerce, it's all set up so that if like if we deactivate the plugin, WooCommerce goes back to working how it should. Or if WooCommerce is turned off, all the plugins that I built that rely on WooCommerce turn themselves off too and give you warnings all across the top of the page, right? Saying this is all turned off because WooCommerce is not around anymore. So one more thing. I think we've all had the experience of working on, we've all had the experience of working on open source projects. I mean, WordPress is open source. Redmine is open source. You know, some of the other things that I've worked on, Spree and Canvas are open source. How do you come up to speed on those? Pretty much the same process. I mean, I've noticed a lot of open source stuff tends to have more formal docs, or they have nothing at all. But, you know, they might have a mailing list or forums or stuff like that. Most of them now, I notice, have wikis or at least a few wiki pages. Um, And it's the same thing. I mean, I go through the readme, I'll go through that documentation, I will... You know, and if it's like a Rails app, look at the gem file, look at the routes, you know, look at the models. It's, I think it's the same process. The only kind of difference is you don't really have someone you can call. Like, you can't call your client to talk about it. If you know the maintainer, you know people who work on it, you can always ask them. But a lot of times you kind of need to really assemble your thoughts and like post to a mailing list or something and, you know, kind of take a bit of flack for, oh, you're, you're a newbie type thing. Which is retarded. Yeah. Anyway, that's part of the reason yeah, I, mean, I don't love contribution to WordPress core because when I first started, in fact, I do zero contribution to WordPress core because when I first started, I asked some questions and got that junk and I essentially, I almost left the WordPress community because it was just retarded. I would never choose to spend my time with people that treated me that way. So why on earth would I do it for work? And then I found other people that were not morons. You can tell my opinion on that. I know WordPress now has uh, flagged tickets in track, which is what they use for all their bug tracking called easy fix. And so it's, it may be a decent amount of work, but it doesn't touch like all over nine parts of WordPress. It's contained. It's one fix in one spot. So you can do it. You can do the test. And they even do a bit of a mentorship program where you can get current core contributors to help mentor you through those fixes. So they're doing much better on it than they were before because before it used to be basically, you know, I got called a moron and I'm an idiot. So Yeah. And I mean, I've been on the other side of it, you know, not calling people that, but I've seen 
you know, a ton of new people get started and asking specific questions or not even specific, asking general questions. And it's hard because, of, you know, as a maintainer or even a top contributor, you want to help people. But at the same time, like that takes up a lot of your time. What I've done on projects is kind of make a like a getting started guide for developers or, you know, how to contribute and try to give people a bit of process. And so even if I don't have time, I would be able to say like, hey, I'm sorry, I don't have time to help you specifically, but here's kind of the document to get it started. If you have a specific question, feel free to, you know, post a new thread or whatever. But it's hard to balance the, you know, here's the information you need. I am an expert on the system, so I don't know exactly what problems you're going to run into. And then balance that against the one-on-one help for everyone because there is a lot of people that want to help but then they burn out or they don't do it so you can't invest a lot of time in one person and one of the projects i contribute to wp e-commerce has like again full documentation on how to get the repository how to put a patch up or a pull request in github and all of that has the whole workflow how to add to documentation which is very helpful to anyone starting out and i'll put a link in the show notes to the the guides we made for chili project there's like one section about how do you want to if you want to contribute code and it's like a six step process but then it's like if you want a more long in depth version it's a whole another wiki page so that's kind of how we documented that. Yep, very cool. Any other thoughts related to uh, coming up to speed or helping other people come up to speed on new projects where there's a lot to know? One thing, I mean, kind of like what Curtis talked about with doing his uh, the documentations on each function. I try to take advantage of the time where I'm new to the project and I don't know stuff to write documentation for the next new person. And so, you know, I just gained this little bit of knowledge. While I still remember the old me who didn't have that knowledge, I try to capture, you know, that transition from old me to the new me and get it written down or recorded or however, something so that the next person who comes along, they have an easier time. So they don't have to spend two hours learning and running into problems to find the answer. They can just read it and do it in two minutes and move on. Um, and it's kind of the, I think it's a Boy Scouts. It's like, you know, leave the area better than how you found it type idea. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, when, I, when I'm when i coming in, I just did one recently, actually, the late last year and early this year, where I knew I was coming in for a specific set of features, and I was also building the development process proper and then going to be handing it off back to their internal team. And so I made sure there's a lot more documentation for that where we, so the internal team could see how we did it at that point. And I know since then they've changed some things, which is fine, of course, because that works better for them now. But it was a, like, there was a huge amount of documentation and again, wiki pages and we used Bitbucket. So it has a wiki built right in and a whole bunch of information built there so they could continue to take it long term. Again, it's like again, a whole series of tutorials about how to work with the code that you have or the system you have now. I think another thing, developers think about it, but I don't think other people do as much. But documentation's great if you keep it updated, but you're still doing steps by hand. What I've done on the past few projects is some of those steps I've actually written into a script, like a setup script that would download stuff that you need. It would copy files, set up stuff. So instead of you going through 10 steps manually and accidentally forgetting to do five, the setup script does all of it for you. And so you, you sit down on a computer, run it, and you're ready to go. And kind of the advantage that you as the creator of that get is if you ever screw up your system or need to reinstall or if you're using um, virtual machines or stuff like that, you can go from it's a fresh install to I'm set up a lot quicker. One project I worked on, I ran that script probably every week. I was working on a remote server and so I was able to kind of delete the server and start over. And it was nice to know like I have everything set up, I'm good to go. There's not some weird thing that's going to screw me up you know, in two hours time and make all my work go away. So 
kind of automating and scripting some of that stuff is pretty easy. The time savings on it's amazing, especially if you check it in and let other people use it too. Yeah, they're really handy. You see those in the Vagrant files and Docker files, depending on how you're setting stuff up. Also, you know, chef recipes and things like that. Yeah, a lot of stuff I've even done just bash scripts. I mean, because mm-hmm. I've used all of those. I don't, not a lot of chef, but, you know, but they're focused on one specific thing. Well, there's sometimes like in Rails, you know, you pretty much want to create your database, migrate it, seed it with data, you know, do a bundle install. Some of those things you're going to do multiple times, not, not just when the system gets set up. So my setup script usually handles all that. And if you do it the right way, you can have it skip over one-time stuff and just do stuff that you continuously do, like bundle install or whatever. Yeah, that makes sense. It's interesting that a lot of this information can be held in places that aren't specifically documents, per se. You have, you know, the bash scripts or the, you know, the Docker file or the Vagrant file or whatever you're using to get set up, you know. The information in there is basically what you need to get it set up. You know, you have information in the tests, you have information in... In the code itself, you know, you can document it the way Curtis is talking about, where you put information around what you put in there so that people know why it's there or what it does. You know, and, and none of these really qualify as documents per se, but they are, you know, informational if you know how to utilize them. Well, and that's the whole point. Is it's executable documentation. It's documentation that you can run and have it either do something or you can see the output of. I mean, that's really... When you drill it down, that's the whole point of unit tests and automated testing is that you have this documentation of how the system should work and you're running that documentation and you know proving that it either works or it doesn't work. You know, and, that, and I mean, if you want to get really meta, you can probably think about code that way too, but I don't want to get there right now. Yep. So have you worked on any projects that aren't, strictly speaking, code projects where you've had to ramp up on things? Yeah. And is the process that much different? I mean, we've talked specifically about code, but... One project I did was more of like a business process type project where like the company needed help with their development process, needed training for developers, that sort of thing. I'm trying to think. The core concepts are pretty much the same. You know, you kind of figure out how they are doing things now, what the existing setup is. Maybe try it once or twice. So like if, you know, if it's a business process, like you run through doing invoices once to see how it works. And then talking to them and figuring out like, okay, what, how do you want this to be? And then, you know, the project was kind of a transition from where they are now to where they want to be. I think it's the same thing. I mean, depending on what it is you're doing, you might need a lot more interaction. Like in that project, like I was talking to people every day. It's not like you can just go off, play with the code, figure out how it worked, and then come back later. But it's pretty much, I mean, you're basically trying to load as much knowledge into your head as you can so that when you can talk to people, you kind of get a good idea and then you can do, you know, the mapping of, where they are to where they want to be. Yeah. So one other thing that just came to mind was uh, when I do estimates and things, a lot of times there's a lot of information tied up in that. And so, you know, by putting the information into the estimate or putting the information within easy reach of the estimate, you know, so I get an email and, you know, I can put some of that information in there to kind of say, well, you know, I'm estimating it this way because of this concern. You know, that also is information that can be passed along to whoever comes next. Do you mean like estimates like a proposal for the project or yes. estimates like, okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for that, when I do proposals, I don't do them very frequently, but I will try to write out like the different like big blocks of it. And those are like, you know, I estimate inside of those. And so in each of those big blocks, like I'll describe like what it includes, what it doesn't mm-hmm. include, all that. And if I have my choice, I actually do that in my project management system. And so I do a lot of the breaking stuff up, estimating in there. And so then if the client's like, yes, let's get started, all of that's there. And those 
estimated blocks are actually just tasks that I would start working on. And so it's like, here's the list of requirements and we're good to go. Sometimes if it's kind of more interactive, they'll we'll work back and forth on one of those tasks and kind of refine it like, okay, well, you said it can't do this. Let's make it do that, even if it changes the estimate. Yep. All right, let's go ahead and do the picks. Curtis, you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I'm going to pick just something you can do, which is dishwash your keyboard. I have uh, tossed my keyboard, many keyboards, into dishwashers. Make sure you take out the batteries if it's wireless and stick it on the top rack. Let it run through the rinse cycle. Let it dry. I have to let my Kinesis Freestyle dry for a week or two weeks, actually, to be totally dry, and then it works fine. I've been doing that for Actually, I've saved a few keyboards from, like, full coffee spills or a whole can of pop dropped on them. And the first one I tried was you hit delete and then get, like, the E key um, on the opposite side of the keyboard, right? That was the first one I tried it on. It works great. Huh. Washing machine and dryer might work, too, if you need it faster. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, done it faster. So I had a, I had one job that at, like, 3.30 on Friday, my boss spilled their whole cup of coffee with, like, sugar on their Apple wireless keyboard, and we pulled the batteries immediately. And I went down and stuck it in the dishwasher, like, right away on the top shelf and ran it through the rinse cycle and then used uh, an air compressor to dry it out faster. And we used it Monday. It was fine. No problem whatsoever. So I've done it with tons of different keyboards. And that's actually why having a backup keyboard is good in case you need to clean one. That's crazy. What, that you can do that? Yeah. Oh, I've done it for years. It's great. Um, I have my backup freestyle kinesis coming soon, actually. The last time I washed this keyboard, we were going away for six weeks. So I dishwashed it just before I left, stuck it on the bed, and came back six weeks later, plugged it back in, and kept going. Yeah, that's nuts. I don't know if I'm brave enough to stick my keyboard in the dishwasher. I'd stick a keyboard in the dishwasher. Mm-hmm. All right, Eric, what are your picks? All right, so I got two picks. This first one, it's the copywriting book from Itibiz, who I've talked about on the show before. A really great marketing copywriting person. This book was actually off the market for a while. Um, it's on now. I don't know if she's taking it away, but like the URL has shh, so it's like one of those like don't tell everyone about it. I think this ebook, along with the Copy Hacker series, have been the best copywriting ebooks I've ever read, um, and I've read through a bunch of them now. I mean, literally, the title is Copywriting for People Who Categorically Do Not Want to Be Copywriters When They Grow Up. So it's a good one if you need a little bit of copywriting for products or your business or whatever. Highly recommend it. My second pick, kind of relevant to what I was talking about earlier about kind of scripting your setup, is the utility called Docker. It's basically a, a system, platform, whatever, to build containerized applications or whatever. It's kind of weird to describe, but it's basically you can build like mini virtual machines and... I like it because I've tried to use Vagrant. I tried to use other VM machines and all that to do development. So it's I can work completely isolated from my main computer. Docker is the first one that actually works for me and is actually really performant. Um, I'm actually using it on a project right now with a client. And it's amazing to just hop into that, work on stuff. I screw stuff up. I exit out, rebuild it in like two seconds, and I'm back in with a clean slate. So it's pretty amazing. I think I just did 1.0 a little bit ago. So if you haven't tried it out, now's a good time to try it out. I haven't used it in production, but as far as like reproducible development environments, it's great. Awesome. We did an episode on Ruby Rogues, so I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. So I'm going to pick a couple of things. One of them is Screen Hero. I mentioned it before. So Screen Hero is uh, just a handy tool. Like I said, you can share screens. You can click on other folks' screen if you're sharing through Screen Hero. It doesn't work on Linux yet but they are coming out of beta and will be charging for it soon. So it will be a paid product, but I think they're awesome and I want to give them some attention. So 
And that's what I'm doing. Also, just in general, I want to point out that GitHub, so I guess this is my other pick, but so GitHub has a lot of the features that we've talked about here. They have issue tracking, which I know some people actually use for their project management. And I've also, you know, they have a wiki in there. You can do readmes in most uh, text formats and it'll show it, you know, with headers and formatting and everything else. So you can do it in Markdown or org mode. And so overall, GitHub is a great place to go if you want to, you know, get started documenting this stuff and putting the information in. They also make the the Git commits pretty easy to read. So all in all, it's a great resource if you're going to be working on stuff to to do that kind of thing. So yeah, those are all the picks I have. So uh, we'll wrap up. Thanks for coming, guys. Catch you all next week. Working and learn from designers at Amazon and Quora, developers at SoundCloud and Heroku, and entrepreneurs like Patrick Ambron from Brand Yourself. You can level up your design, dev, and promotion skills at Level Up Con, taking place October 8th and 9th in downtown Saratoga Springs, New York. Only two hours by train from New York City, this is the perfect place to enjoy early fall at Oktoberfest while you mingle with industry pioneers in a resort town in upstate New York. Get your ticket today at levelupcon.com. Space is extremely limited for this premium conference experience, so don't delay. Check out levelupcon.com now. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum.